Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me this week as we prepare to take a look at a new case. This week we are going to be looking at the Cotton Club murders, which is the murder of Roy Raiden. Before we dive into this case, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, or The Death Cast. If you'd like to sign up for the show's mailing list, you can go to corpsecreekpublishing.com click on the sign up button if you are interested in becoming a patreon member of the show just go to tinyurl.com backslash dc patreon for as little as two dollars a month you can get access to exclusive content as well as the first five episodes of the series A couple people have asked me why I moved the first few episodes into the Patreon tier, and it's simply put, I'm unhappy with the sound quality of those episodes. I started this show three years ago, didn't know what I was doing as far as podcasting goes, so those first few episodes, I'm really still figuring my way forward, not only in terms of sound, but in terms of what this show was is going to be and how I wanted to present cases. So if you haven't heard those episodes, you're interested in hearing them, go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax, close your eyes. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. So the murder of Roy Raiden is one some people may be familiar with because of its tangential association with the Son of Sam killings. If you don't know how that case is tied into this one, don't worry, we will get to it. But I know that some of my audience is aware of the ties between the two cases, and that is how they learned about Roy Raiden. In fact, that is how I learned about Roy Raiden, specifically through my friend, private investigator, and radio show host, Ed Opperman's program, The Opperman Report. About five, six years ago, he had a number of people on his show who were covering both Son of Sam killings as well as the Roy Raiden case. And in fact, he had the author of the book, Bad Company, The Startling True Story of Hollywood's Cotton Club Murder by Steve Wick, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, on his show to discuss the case. And he really piqued my interest, Mr. Wick did, when he was discussing this case. Because this case is such a... Hollywood type case and what I mean by that is this crime could only take place in a place such as Hollywood. You've got a producer of movies who's looking to have his next big film. You have a drug dealer who's looking to transition from dealing drugs into the movie industry and you have a larger-than-life 
character in Roy Raiden, who was a producer of vaudeville revival shows that would tour the country. And he was fairly successful, this in large part due to the fact that he had somewhat dubious business practices. Before I get into how everything came to play out, we're going to go over the last known days of Raiden's life. On May 12th of 1983, he flew into Los Angeles from New York, ostensibly to have a business meeting with one of the other backers on this film that he was working on, The Cotton Club, which is ba was to be based on the club in Harlem of, I believe it was the 1930s. It was a fairly famous African-American club. The reason for this meeting is that Raiden had partnered up with a woman by the name of Lainey Jacobs, and the two of them combined were going to help produce this film with renowned film producer Robert Evans, who at the time was at an extreme low point in his career, and he was looking to have that next mega hit. Well, Raiden and Jacobs had had some falling outs over the previous few months, specifically due to the fact that both of them wanted to be the head backer of this film and were not willing to give an inch to the other. So Raiden flies out to L.A. and he checks himself into the Plaza Suite Hotel, which is kind of a run-down hotel for someone of Raiden's extravagant tastes. And he did this despite the fact that his press agent and really personal assistant, a man by the name of Richard Gersh, had warned Raiden not to attend this meeting. The reasons for this being that Raiden's business partner in this deal Lanny Jacobs was seen as a very intelligent, cold, and calculating individual who would do whatever she could in order to get what she wanted. Raiden, however, was blinded to this fact, as he thought that he could outplay and outmaneuver Jacobs. On the 13th, Raiden made numerous phone calls, including some to his mother, where he was described as being agitated and completely out of sorts for the individual that they all knew. Raiden had an extremely bad cocaine habit. Because of this, he had become exceptionally paranoid. Eventually, Raiden was convinced to allow a friend of his to trail them. This friend was an actor by the name of Desmond Wilson, who many may remember from his time on the television series Sanford and Son, where he played Lamont Sanford, the son of Red Fox's character, Fred. This point in time, Desmond had a pretty heavy cocaine habit himself, and friends of Raiden really tried to talk him out of this because they did not see 
Desmond as being a reliable individual who could help Raiden in the capacity that was needed. Raiden's plan was for Desmond to bring his gun along with them and wait outside in his car. And when he saw Raiden and Laney exit the hotel and get into the limousine, he was supposed to follow them over to the LaSalle restaurant, which was kind of a hangout for movie studio types where they would talk business. The plan was further that Desmond would go into the restaurant and the two of them would just accidentally meet while they were there and Raiden would eventually leave with Desmond. One of the individuals who was with Raiden at this time was a man by the name of Richard Lawson. Lawson was Raiden's personal assistant and he fervently attempted to talk Raiden out of leaving with Jacobs for the night to no avail. Desmond Wilson showed up at some point in the afternoon and he and Raiden went over the plans for that evening before Wilson left. He returned at roughly six o'clock dressed for dinner to find that Raiden too had been dressed by his personal assistant and they discussed various aspects of their plan while doing cocaine. At 8 o'clock, Wilson's secretary arrived to pick him up. She was to be his date for the evening at the rendezvous at the restaurant. Raiden gave Wilson roughly $150 to pay for their meal and then instructed Wilson to go wait outside in his car and to follow him once he saw Raiden get into the vehicle. While he waited outside, Wilson is said to have continued taking cocaine roughly 45 minutes later, so this would be about 8.45ish, a black Cadillac limousine pulled up and a woman dressed in an exquisite gown stepped out. This was Lady Jacobs. Raiden, who was up in the hotel room, received a call from the front desk that she was there, after which Jonathan Lawson and Raiden welcomed her into the room that Raiden was staying in. After a few minutes during which they drank champagne and exchanged pleasantries, Raiden informed Laney that they had reservations at La Scala restaurant. They talked for a few more minutes with Raiden going into the bedroom at least once to do more cocaine. And while they w awaited Raiden's return, Lawson and Laney had a brief conversation. See, Laney was a major drug dealer, and in addition to being Roy's partner in the Cotton Club film, she was also supplying him with drugs. Raiden had purchased drugs from her, only to cancel the check that he had paid with, which furthered the animosity between them. To smooth things over, Raiden had 
given them another check. And Lainey stated to Lawson that she really hoped that this check would clear uh, and that there would be no further problems between them, to which Lawson is reported to have stated that though this check will clear, there won't be any further issues. When Raiden emerged, they began talking again, and Lainey informed Raiden that she didn't want to be part of the company that he was putting together. Instead, she was simply looking for a finder's fee, which apparently pleased Raiden greatly, and he agreed to it for the time being. There was a bit of an argument between Jacobs, Raiden, and Lainey, as she wanted him to go over to her house in Beverly Hills to retrieve two grams of cocaine from her vehicle, which... Lawson flat out refused to do, and eventually Raiden sided with Lawson on this, despite protestations from Laney that they needed this for when they returned from dinner. A short time after this, Desmond Wilson saw Roy Raiden and Laney Jacobs emerge from the hotel and get into the back of a limousine. The limousine peels out from the hotel, and Wilson has a difficult time catching up to them. But eventually, the car pulls away from him, and he loses it. And instead of trying to track the car with his friend down, Wilson decides to head to the restaurant instead. What he did not see during this point in time was... The limousine with Raiden pulled to the side of the road and Laney Jacobs stepped from the limousine and into her own car, which was actually parked much closer to the hotel than she had told Raiden and Jacobs it had been. While she's getting into her own car, another vehicle pulls up and two men get out of it and climb into the limousine, sitting to either side of Roy Raiden, after which point, Lainey drove back to her home in Beverly Hills, and the car carrying Roy Raiden drove off into the night. Later that evening, Jonathan Lawson was becoming somewhat worried as he had not heard anything from either Desmond Wilson or Roy Raiden, so he calls the restaurant only to discover that Roy and his guest never arrived. Now Lawson was really worried because a few minutes before he called the restaurant, he had received a phone call by, from a woman claiming to be Betty Rogers. and This woman was asking for an individual whom Lawson was unaware of before the woman asked for Raiden. Now, Lawson believed that the person who called was actually Lady Jacobs, and when he confronted the caller about this, the phone call was very quickly terminated. So with this in mind, he calls, he finds out that Raiden never arrived, now he's worried, so he starts talking to... Wilson, who says that he never showed up. And it's at this point that Lawson discovers that 
Demond Wilson lost the limousine when it took off and, you know, basically floored it into traffic, making following the vehicle impossible. After this phone call, Lawson began making numerous phone calls, trying to track down Laney Jacobs, along with numerous other associates. One of these phone calls was to a man by the name of Johnny Stapelli, who was an aging mobster, and Stapelli became pretty angry when Lawson informed him that they had had Desmond Wilson following the limousine that Raiden was in. Eventually, he was able to get in contact with Laney, and basically Lawson lets her know, hey, either get Roy back over here right away, or I'm going to the cops. A shouting match ensued, during which Laney stated that she and Roy had gotten into an argument and that he had ordered the limousine driver to pull over on the Sunset Strip and that he had gotten out and stormed away. Eventually, Laney ended up hanging up on Lawson, who again called Johnny Stapelli, who let him know, look, there's really nothing I can do to help you with this. Eventually, Lawson falls asleep, and he wakes up the next morning. This is Saturday the 14th. He's a lot calmer. He calls Stapelli again. Stapelli let him know that basically, look, this is the kind of thing Roy is known to do from time to time. Don't worry about it. He's going to turn up. Jonathan Lawson, however... He's just got that sixth sense, that gut feeling that, no, this isn't like other times. Roy's not going to turn up. But there really isn't much that he can do at this point to help his friend. Lawson attempts to get in contact with Damond Wilson again and is unable to. And eventually, he spends the rest of the morning fielding phone calls from friends and family of Roy Raiden, who are just as panicked as he is over Roy's sudden disappearance. One of Raiden's relatives suggests that Lawson get in contact with Roy's attorney in L.A., and that he should hire a private investigator, which he does, a former narcotics detective by the name of John O'Grady. O'Grady lets Lawson know right off the bat that it's pretty probable that Roy Raiden had been murdered by Laney Jacobs, and at this point, persons unknown. And Lawson is really besides himself one of the reasons that it's suspected that all of this went down is that Laney Jacobs, like I said earlier, was a major drug dealer. And basically what would happen is she had connections in Florida who would drive the cocaine out to her place in Beverly Hills where it would be placed inside of her garage, at which point she would arrange to have the dealers come and get their drugs and go out and sell it, 
Well, on one of these shipments, it was stolen from her garage, and whether she honestly believed it or not, Lady blamed this on Roy Raiden. This was one of the many, many pieces that she used to justify having him murdered, that Roy had stolen these drugs from her, he had passed bad checks to her, that kind of thing. So, after meeting with O'Grady, Lawson and this private investigator, they meet up with Raiden's former father-in-law, a man by the name of Henry Phillip. Phillip had taken the unusual step of actually going to Lady Jacob's home in Beverly Hills, and upon going inside the home, it was pretty apparent to him that everything had been cleaned out and that she had fled the area. One of the things that Phillip had taken from the house was a picture of Lady Jacobs in a very well-dressed, handsome Cuban man whose last name was Belichase. Upon seeing this photograph, Investigator O'Grady immediately pinned the man as a drug dealer, and he was informed that Belichase was Laney's connection from Miami. So now we've got this private investigator involved, and they really, they know that Raiden's dead, but they don't know anything more than that. And they're searching around. It's Saturday. Sunday comes along, and they are still trying to find what happened to Roy. Eventually, Raiden is reported as being a missing persons case. Unfortunately, though, the person they believe responsible for making Roy go missing is no longer in the area. Lawson does have some contact with Laney during this period of time. She continues to stand by her story that Roy had gotten out of the limousine on sunset and stormed off after an argument which Lawson is not believing in any way, shape, or form. But they cannot find the pieces to fit together what actually happened. And it's going to be quite a while before these pieces are presented to them. So we're going to backtrack here and look at the major participants in this crime before we jump ahead to, you know, the present time, so to speak, of 1983 and the discovery of Roy Raiden's body. So you can get an idea of how it was that we got here. Roy Alexander Raiden was born November 13, 1949, to a Broadway promoter by the name of Al Raiden, who was fairly successful in the 1920s and 1930s. Much like his son would... Al Raiden had a career where he was extremely successful, then, you know, they were dead-ass poor, and then he would be extremely successful again. Roy's mother was a woman by the name of Renee, who had been a stripper, who, from what I can gather, either worked for Al Raiden at some point or met him 
through his connections in show business. They get married, they have Roy, eventually they get divorced, with the elder Raiden moving to Bayshore and opening a bar where it was said that he would sit behind the bar and spin tales of his time in show business to patrons. Raiden saw all of this. He came to worship the ground that his father walked on, particularly the aspect of Al's life, where he was kind of known as a person who was in the know. Roy aspired to be that. He wanted to be in the know about the happenings of show business and to be a, you know, a big shot, just as his father had been at one point in time. During his teen years, Roy's father passed away, and this absolutely devastated Roy. And when his father passed away, Raiden felt that he was now rudderless, as his father was really the driving force for him to succeed, because he wanted to make the old man proud. Raiden ends up dropping out of high school and goes to work in the... Clyde Beatty Circus at the age of 16, where he's working in publicity. And during this period of time, friends of Raiden's father, the likes of Orson Welles and Joey Marks, kind of adopted young Roy Raiden because they saw something in him and, you know, they wanted to help honor the memory of their friend who had passed away. So, they start introducing Roy to various producers and club owners and things of that nature, directors in and around New York City. And he starts doing other types of work like getting rock bands contracts with record companies and booked into high-profile gigs. And he's fairly successful at this, but he wants more Around this time, Raiden begins really projecting this larger-than-life persona, wearing suits and fedoras and flashy capes. And some people have said that this is similar to how his father had dressed during his heyday. But in addition to this, Raiden took on a very boisterous manner of living, and this helped him to succeed because he was the consummate self-promoter. If you listen to my series on Jimmy Savile, individuals like this, they have this innate ability that most people don't have to self-promote themselves to others, to make it so that every little thing they do do to the outside seems like a big deal and a big accomplishment and in turn attracts people to them. They want to be a part of this because here is this person who's massively successful. They're going from one success to the other and they want to be along for the ride and share in the riches. Raiden gets this idea in his head that he should start doing 
vaudeville revival shows. So he starts putting them on. They're fairly successful. He's basically get, you know, getting these stars of yesteryear and getting them to come out and be on the stage. But he always promoted it as Roy Raiden presents you know, Vaudeville Review 1976. He never put on there on these shows, you know, you know, Joey Bishop and the you know, Vaudeville Review, and I throw that name out there because that's one of the individuals that Raiden promoted. You know, these old-timers who were kind of struggling to get by, might be working the nightclub circuit or whatever. He's getting them together, putting them on buses, and sending them out across the country where they are reaping great rewards for Raiden, while they themselves are getting, you know, a small pittance of what he is making. By the time he was in his early 20s, Roy Raiden was a self-made millionaire. Raiden ended up getting married to a woman by the name of Loretta at some point. And because of his income, he bought a 72-room mansion in Southampton, New York, that Raiden dubbed Ocean Castle. And it's important, you're going to want to remember Ocean Castle because it does play a pretty large part in the story of Roy Raiden. And it also gives us a glimpse into the reality versus the fantasy of the entertainment industry. It's been said that one of the reasons that Raiden was so successful is because of a connection he had through his father by the name of Johnny Stapelli. Stapelli, known as The Bug, was a member of the Genovese crime family. Stapelli had a fairly long criminal history. He was convicted in the late 1940s of having participated in narcotics distribution in Los Angeles and was actually arrested in New York City and extradited. Those who were close with Raiden have stated that he very rarely talked about the man he called his quote-unquote Uncle Johnny, but when he did, he would just drop hints that he had muscle should anything get out of line. Stapelli helped Raiden to book numerous acts for his shows as he had a lot of connections in the entertainment industry. And obviously, these individuals are not going to want to cross a member of the Genovese crime family because bad things happen to people who do those types of things. At some point in the mid-1970s, Raiden's marriage to Loretta dissolved. This has been said to have been caused by the lifestyle that Raiden was living. It's not known at this point that if he was involved in drug usage or not, but he was constantly on the road, constantly promoting 
it really left very little time for a home life. And so Roy and Loretta got divorced. And many people have said that Loretta was the brains behind the entire operation of Roy Radin's enterprises, whereas he himself was the drive that pushed it forward. And eventually, he ends up meeting another woman by the name of Tony Fillett, who, if you'll remember from a few moments ago, her father actually helps look for Roy Raiden after he disappears. Tony was much different from Loretta in that she reveled in the lifestyle that his business provided her you know, the shopping on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, the mansion, the chauffeured limousines, the hobnobbing with the rich and famous. And at some point during this, as we know, Raiden started doing cocaine, and he very quickly developed an excessive habit, which... If you see pictures of Roy Raiden, he was a man of excesses. He wouldn't just have, say, a sandwich for lunch. He would go in and completely raid the refrigerator and wolf down everything before going back to work. He was this way in every aspect of his life. He couldn't just have a little of something. He had to have all of it. Which is not surprising, as Raiden was a very large man. If I'm not mistaken, I think his height was somewhere around six foot five. Uh, you know, he was just a, a very large, boisterous man. Eventually, though, these excesses are going to catch up to Roy. He's living in Ocean Castle. He's throwing these lavish parties. And people are beginning to talk about his business practices, with some of them stating that, you know, Roy might not be as on the up and up as he's claiming to be. There were a number of rumors going around that Roy's vaudeville shows, which many times would be put out in the Midwest as policemen's benefits, were in fact not benefiting the police officers they were supposed to be, but were in fact benefiting Roy and Roy alone, with many people claiming that he was basically putting on these benefits and then pocketing all of the money. But that wasn't the only part of his excesses that were going to catch up to him. Raiden was known to basically spend all of his time at Studio 54 and other clubs in Manhattan doing drugs and hobnobbing with his famous acquaintances. While he would be doing this, you know, he'd be spinning yards of all these great ideas that he had of, you know, financing movies and Broadway musicals and, you know, reviving this form of entertainment or that form of entertainment, usually with a large entourage around him, along with one or two individuals who were little more than hired muscle. 
he was a somebody, but only to people within the circles that he traveled in. The average person in America really had never heard the name Roy Raiden until 1980, that is. On April 11th, 1980, a young woman by the name of Melanie Haller, who was a model and aspiring actress who had been in Playboy magazine as well as guest starred on a few episodes of Welcome Back, Cotter. Melanie and her date for that evening, a management consultant by the name of Robert McKeague, had been invited to Ocean Castle by Raiden. This was arranged through a photographer that Melody knew who had told her that Raiden might be able to help her land some bigger television and movie roles and basically further along her career. So they get to Ocean Castle and there are two other individuals there. Wellington Ray Jr. and Joseph Van Ditelli who were both Rhode Island narcotics detectives. Wellington Ray was a friend of Raiden's. The two officers had come to Raiden's home at his request as he wanted to talk about producing a show for the Rhode Island State Police Union. There were other house guests there at this period of time, but Generally speaking, they were just kind of hangers-ons that Raiden knew. So the night's progressing. McKeague is discussing various narcotics deals he has made with the two officers, unaware that they're cops, and I'm sure they're probably shaking their heads and rolling their eyes at him. And Melanie is getting increasingly intoxicated as the night goes on. Eventually, the two officers leave, and Robert McKeague tries to convince Melanie and another woman to sleep with him. Now, according to the book Bad Company by Pulitzer Prize winning author Steve Wick, McKeague shows the women his vast collection of narcotics, and eventually McKeague and Melanie get dressed in you know, revealing leather outfits and Don Nazi caps before marching through the house, where they go into Raiden's bedroom and Don dog collars with chains and begin whipping one another. Eventually, she leaves McKeague and goes back up to Raiden's bedroom with her portfolio to try and discuss you know, some possible work, but Raiden is not interested in speaking with her at that point, and he, she is escorted back down to her bedroom, where Melanie gets into an argument with McKee before returning to Raiden's bedroom. This is kind of important. Some kind of altercation takes place. It's never really clear what happens, but Melanie begins flipping out and ends up breaking the lens to Raiden's video camera. I think it's pretty obvious why Roy Raiden had a video camera in his bedroom pointed directly at his bed because he liked to entertain women in his room and videotape the encounters. 
Saturday passes for the most part without incident till that evening when a man by the name of Mickey Davinko swallowed a bottle of sleeping pills and ended up being rushed to the Southampton Hospital where his stomach was pumped. Raiden went with this man to the hospital and when he returned early Sunday morning, he found Melanie Holler screaming hysterically. She had cuts and bruises all over her. And according to later accounts, it was obvious that she was disoriented. Just before Sunday, one of Raiden's employees was ordered to take Melanie to the train station. And this individual, Ray Wouters, later stated that he found Melanie in the foyer stumbling around and mumbling incoherently. Wouters went and got Robert McKeague, who upon seeing Melanie became enraged, threw her to the floor, and began to kick her in the face and the stomach. Wouters attempted to get control of the situation and was able to, when McKeague picked up a porcelain dog and attempted to smash it over Melanie's head. Reuters was able to eventually get Melanie from the house and into a car where he dropped her at a train station. Then, just around 9 a.m., a conductor found Melanie slumped over on a bench at the train station and she was rushed to the hospital. Again, according to the book Bad Company, Melanie was met at the hospital by a Suffolk County detective. And she stated, quote, I was beaten. They dumped me on the train like I was baggage. They beat and kicked me. This eventually led to the story appearing all over the tri-state area that a model had been assaulted at the home of a very famous and influential producer in Southampton. Later in the day when this detective spoke to Melanie again after she was out of the emergency room and her head was a little clearer, she claimed that she had been raped inside of Raiden's bedroom where a gun was present as were large amounts of cocaine and that during this assault, Raiden had videotaped the entire thing. Now, Raiden learned that his house was going to be raided shortly after this, and he ordered the staff to strip his bed and clean the sheets, blankets, and get rid of any incriminating evidence, including drugs and video cassettes, all of that kind of stuff. When the police arrived, Raiden went into his normal bluff and bluster, screaming about he was in a very important man, and don't you know who I am, and I have friends on your PBA, and who work for the prosecutor's office. Eventually, Raiden informed them that he was going to contact his lawyer. Raiden ended up being arrested for illegal possession of a gun, this was the gun, a gun that was found in Raiden's bedroom closet, which he claimed belonged to an officer from Louisiana. Raiden began 
receiving enormously bad press, which infuriated him as he feared that this was going to be the end of his business. Eventually, at least according to Raiden's lawyers, one of Melanie Haller's relatives phoned Ocean Castle and demanded $200,000 in exchange for her dropping the charges, which, which Raiden did not accept. It was at this point that Raiden began contemplating going to the West Coast as he feared that his business on the East Coast was ruined. Raiden was eventually charged with misdemeanor gun possession. He learned about this while he was in Los Angeles looking for an inroad into the movie industry. Melanie Haller's assailant, Robert McKeague, would eventually be convicted of assault and sentenced to 30 days. One interesting piece of information that is often overlooked about all of this is that the man who introduced Melanie Haller to Roy Radin, Ron Sisman, who was a photographer and lived in the Chelsea area of Manhattan, was found murdered in his apartment Someone had broken in and shoved him to the floor before shooting him once execution style in the head. Raiden read about this as he did most things involving the Haller cases. He kept extensive records of all television newscasts and newspaper reporting of it. And when people suggested that Raiden may have had friends of his who could get these kinds of things done, he basically laughed it off as not the type of thing he would ever be involved in. After this incident, Raiden's life and business began to spiral as his addiction to cocaine increased significantly and... The organizations that he had once done business with, namely these policemen's benevolent associations, decided to no longer do business with him due to the bad publicity that had arisen from the Melanie Holler incident. On top of all of this, the individuals who he had once courted within show business as his friends no longer wanted anything to do with him as they saw that being associated with someone like Roy Raiden could have negative effects on their careers. On top of all of that, his marriage to Tony Fillette began to dissolve with the two of them arguing on a near constant basis, oftentimes violently. Raiden continued to unsuccessfully promote his vaudeville shows, and eventually his personal assistant Jonathan Lawson brought it to his attention that Raiden's cocaine habit, as well as the cost of keeping up Ocean Palace, was going to fairly quickly bankrupt him, and that his best options were to sell it. And it was during this 
period that Raiden decided he needed to leave the New York area and instead settle himself into Los Angeles and reinvent himself as a movie producer. And it was this decision which would lead to the events that we began discussing at the beginning of the episode and we will continue discussing next week on the second part of this series. I am going to leave the story of Roy Raiden and Laney Jacobs at this point. I thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts and leave a five-star review. Until next week, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.